Welcome in to the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. And we have a very special guest in studio today. Actually, our very first COVID interview. Yes. Yeah. Right? Our COVID series that we've done here on the Vaccine Conversation podcast. Mm-hmm. Today, we are welcoming County Supervisor Kirk Euler. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it's great to have you on. I'm I'm really excited to be able to talk to well, somebody. Well, it's a it's a pleasure. I was I was excited when you folks reached out, and I'll tell you, my uh, my assistant at the county is a huge fan of you guys, and so she <laughs> actually sent me a note when when she heard that we were going to be chatting. She said, "I'm totally fangirling right now." So, oh, that's uh, so great. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Um, it's it's so good to realize, like, as we see across the nation and in different countries, there are a lot of people wanting to have conversations about the government and about mandates and legislative action. So that's kind of what we do. And we have found over the last several weeks uh, a big discussion here in, in the coronavirus response, the whole pandemic, the data and um, the legislative and power, the power moves that we've sort of seen by governors and uh, the national um, organizations, as well as we look at how people are dealing with this. Is this the right way? What are the unintended consequences? What? Why is the data contradictory, et cetera? And so I've been looking much, you know, into the data for several weeks, as I like to do. And um, in, in what I've come across, uh, there have been a lot of discrepancies. And it's an unpopular opinion. It was one that was unpopular for me on this podcast, uh, um, weeks ago, but I've held to it. And now we're seeing more and more people coming out with the same, the same conclusions. And so, Kirk, you're one of them. I, I originally saw a video of yours that will kind of go into what you were talking about later, but you're one of the ones that has not been afraid to voice your concerns. And even if that meant getting pushback, which is something we're very familiar with here, and um, it's not always the easy position to take. So uh, it's, it's you, and I'm sure you're very aware of that, especially right now. Uh, let me give everybody a little bit of a background. So I found this very interesting. It's, it says you were the second youngest person in California to be elected county supervisor, which is a post that you held in Placer County several years ago, and then again later, and now you've been reelected three different times after that. And it says you have a, a business background working as a chief operating officer, as well as a managing member of a consulting company. I find this really interesting that specializes in government relations and strategic business communications. So a lot of your background has been in business, and it's also been in dealing with the government. You've obviously been in the position that you are for many years now, and you have a unique understanding of how deep this all runs as it relates to who's in charge and, and what's what they're allowed to legally be doing while they're in charge and what kind of power that these local counties have as it relates to this. This has been a very hot topic lately with these extended lockdowns. So we'll get into all of that. I just want to give everybody a bio. Again, welcome uh, to the show. I'm super happy to have you on here. And Dr. Bob, did you want to start with your first yeah, question? Yeah, Kirk, I guess just um, for myself, because I don't know, and probably a lot of our audience doesn't know, what is the job description of a county supervisor? Like, what are you in charge of? What do you do kind of on a day-to-day basis? Sure, that's a great question. So, uh, county supervisor, first of all, California has 58 counties. We range from Los Angeles County with just over 10 million people to Alpine County with just over 1,000 people. 
So it, it's kind of important to keep that context in mind when we're talking about a state of emergency statewide, because we have a number of counties that have never had a uh, confirmed COVID case, uh, let alone a death. And then we have Los Angeles County that, that has a lot of cases and a lot of deaths. And so, um, you know, when we're talking about then we're having this conversation about local control and moving forward and opening our counties, uh, it's important for people to keep in mind just how diverse the state really is. So county supervisors, uh, each county with the exception of San Francisco, San Francisco is actually a, a, a city and county together. Uh, they're, the boundary of the city of San Francisco is the same boundary as the county. So they're the one exception. The other 57 counties all have five elected county supervisors. We serve four-year terms. And the role of the counties is to assist with all things uh, criminal justice. So each county has an elected district attorney. We are responsible for uh, the sheriff in the unincorporated areas. So where you have incorporated cities, like in uh, in Placer County, we the city of Roseville is our largest incorporated city, about 140,000 people. They take care of police protection within the city limits, but if they arrest somebody in the city of Roseville, they're taking them to the Placer County Jail. They'll go to Placer County Superior Court, where they're going to be prosecuted by a Placer County District Attorney and uh, defended by uh, somebody from the public defender's office that's contracted with by Placer County. And then if they go to jail, they're going to the Placer County jail. And then once they get out of jail, they're going to be monitored on probation by a Placer County probation officer. So we we handle that. We handle health and human services. So all health and welfare programs are run by counties as opposed to cities. Uh, and then, of course, we are also responsible for uh, normal public works, our, our roadways in the unincorporated area, sewers in the unincorporated area. So any place that's not in a city is being served by uh, by the counties. And then we handle uh, land use in the unincorporated areas as well. So any, when, when development projects come in, that's not in a city. It's the county board supervisors who makes the determination on the land use. So that's broad overview of the kinds of uh, roles and responsibilities we have. As it relates specifically to COVID-19, then, I guess, what are the specific tasks that you and your department have? And, you know, like what kind of COVID decisions have you guys been making on the local county level? So uh, each county uh, is required by law to have a public health officer. So the mm -hmm. county is, is has to have a public health officer, which uh, reports to the Board of Supervisors uh, by way of, you know, employment. Uh, but interestingly, when a, a state of emergency is declared, the Board of Supervisors has no say in uh, orders issued by the public health officer. So even though wow. we, yeah, even though we hire the public health officer, uh, the public health officer can order whatever he or she wants. And the local hmm. elected body has no say during the state of emergency at the local level. So that was the case for us. We adopted uh, a resolution early in March when, um, you know, the models were showing millions of Americans dead and we were worried about our healthcare system being overrun. We did adopt the state of emergency back then. Uh, and during that period that we had our locally declared state of emergency, the public health officer was free to issue whatever orders she wanted. Um, and we couldn't countermand her orders. I 
will tell you that there was one instance where she ordered the closing of uh, golf courses and of uh, the, the she shut down um, uh, commercial gardening operations. And while we can't countermand her order, we can change her job title to former public health officer. <laughs> so um, that message was delivered. Huh, and wow. six, six days later, our golf courses were back open. Wow. And, wow. Our, and our commercial gardeners were, were back at work. So, right. so we... We're, we're not. We're, we we do have uh, we we do have some influence still, and that only is the case as far as their level of authority. That's only the case during a state of emergency. Uh, locally declared. So we we let our local in Placer County we let our locally declared state of emergency expire, hmm. and we are not under a locally declared. So. Um, so the public health officer cannot issue any orders. Uh, we are. How do I put this? We are, quote unquote, following the governor's orders. However, we are doing nothing. We're not spending any county resources to enforce the governor's orders. Okay. I see. So let me go back to the beginning of April or the, the excuse me, the middle of March, actually, when we have this national lockdown. The original timing of this was to be so that we don't overburden the hospital systems. We don't overwhelm the hospitals. And it was for two weeks and everybody was pretty much on board to say, OK, let's do our part and we're going to make sure we don't see this crazy spike because, you know, hospitals are not going to be able to handle in the ICUs the number that are being projected here. So at what point... Did you guys realize, and where you are, at what point did you realize that the hospitals were not going to be overwhelmed? Well, I think I really started getting active with my public pushback uh, around the first part of April. I think that's the first time I, I kind of opened up um, uh, in our public session and started saying this is absurd because the you know, we to, to your premise, we did this with the uh, understanding that we were going to be overwhelmed. We aren't being overwhelmed. And now we're seeing um, the the human toll that this is taking, not from a COVID body count, but from uh, the unemployment numbers and loss of businesses and loss of savings and all the rest. And that I, I began to argue back in early April that that cost was a greater cost than anything that we were seeing by way of, of, of deaths. And so, uh, you know, just to put it in perspective for folks here in Placer County, we're a county of about 400,000 people. We've had eight deaths. So on a per hundred thousand, we're at two deaths per hundred thousand population. Meanwhile, we've lost 8,000 jobs per hundred thousand people. Mm -hmm. So 8,000 people lost their livelihood and two people died for every 100,000 people. So our, our response, you know, at what point does the cure become worse than the disease? Right. And then what were you actually seeing in your hospitals? What were the numbers like? Today, we're at three people. Now, we in our South County, between Kaiser and Sutter, we have a staffed bed capacity of 668 beds. As of today, we have three people in our hospital with COVID and nobody in intensive care. I think we maxed out at one point with 19 people who were hospitalized, COVID-related, um, 19 people and four in ICU and a staffed bed capacity of 668. Wow. Do, do the other supervisors, the other four supervisors, do they share your um, 
your direction, you know, as far as where you want the county to go? Or do, do the, some of them disagree with you and agree more with the governor? Well, I introduced a resolution three weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, calling on the governor to adhere to state law and uh, which, you know, state law is very clear. It requires that the governor um, declare a, an end to the state of emergency at the earliest possible opportunity. I mean, that's that's the plain language of the law. And so I introduced a resolution uh, where we lay out the facts of, of um, you know, what what our condition is in Placer County that, you know, how many people are hospitalized and all the rest and say that we are clearly not in a state of emergency and called upon the governor uh, quoting uh, government code section 8629, which reads the governor shall, it's not his, he doesn't have discretion. The governor shall proclaim the termination of a state of emergency at the earliest possible date that conditions warrant. And so I introduced that resolution and it was uh, passed unanimously. All right, cool. And and what are you hearing from other counties, either near you, maybe counties that are in the same situation as Placer County, which you're, you're in a, it's great to hear how, uh, how minimally you guys are being impacted by the actual virus. What are you hearing from similar counties? And actually, are you also in contact with counties that are, uh, being more severely hit, and what are those supervisors saying? Like, do you guys communicate together, or are you kind of more on your own? Well, d- traditionally, counties operate fairly autonomously. Right. Uh, I have been in communication with uh, uh, supervisors from around the state since I started kind of beating this drum. Uh, people are inquiring of of the legal reasoning, but here's you know the really interesting part is I I had. When, when making the argument, I, I pointing at state law, which, you know, I, I'm happy to get in as deep as you guys want to get into the state law and the governor's authority or lack thereof under the law at this point. Um, I, I made the allowance that, you know, maybe we are in we have local emergencies on a county by county basis in some areas. Maybe we meet that threshold, but we certainly don't meet the threshold of a state of emergency. Well, you know, just out of curiosity, I went to check how bad is L.A. County? Are they truly we keep hearing about the number of deaths. And remember, there are over 10 million people in that right. county. Um, so are, are is L.A. County being disproportionately affected? Are they being, quote unquote, overwhelmed? Are they in a state of emergency? Well, I went to L.A. County's own uh, health services department website where they have their COVID-19 dashboard. Mm -hmm. And for the entirety of the county, the worst day that they had of hospitalizations was uh, April 28th. And on April 28th, they had 1,814 people hospitalized in, in their beds, in their uh, 70 designated 911 receiving hospitals within the county. They had 1,814 people hospitalized with COVID. On that same day, they had staffed unoccupied beds of 1,850. So they have more staffed unoccupied beds than they do COVID patients. Mm-hmm. How is even LA County in a state of emergency? Right. They're they not are, being overwhelmed. And they're the majority of cases in California. 
Exactly. Right. And I, and I have also been looking at both because we're in Orange County. I've also been looking at Orange County and LA County. And it's interesting too, because they've, uh, according to the LA times, there's 50% of these deaths that we've seen, um, across the state, um, and in L.A. County are in nursing homes as well. And, and in L.A. County, it might even be more than 50 percent because they, they take the bulk of these statistics for, that are statewide. And you make a really great point when you talk about universal statewide policy and how that the same way we argue for universal mandates, uh, let's say, just as it relates to the body and, and saying everybody can have this one particular medicine when we know everybody's body reacts differently. When you have a policy of lockdown across a state as large as California, which is like the size of Italy, right? Um, you have this 40 million people and every county is different, just the way every state is different. And it doesn't make sense that everybody is in a lockdown like New York City, because we're not all experiencing what New York City was experiencing and the same way within our own state what you guys are experiencing with a population of close to 400,000 like you said is not the same as LA nor should every county be punished basically with this type of lockdown because of what's happening in one particular area and then you look into the data like you're saying and you find out there really is not an overburdening of the hospital system which is the only real reason for the lockdown because we know medically that there is absolutely no way we're going to contain the virus and we're not going to reduce the number of cases. We're just literally spreading them out over time. And so the whole purpose is just to cut that peak only for the hospitals. So what you saw in your hospital county is the same thing that we saw down here. And I I did a post on Facebook about this that had actually been shared over 30,000 times because people across the nation were we're chiming in with what their hospital looked like. And everybody, almost everybody was saying the same thing. Hospitals have been completely empty. Um, this has been through March, through April, and I just posted today for an update. I'm curious to see where everybody is at at this point. But what you saw is kind of what everybody else saw. And then we paused all of these elective procedures. We paused all of these treatments. Again, it was supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to just be something that was going to help our healthcare system. And you're looking at the data in your county saying our system's not overwhelmed. In Orange County, you know, our board of supervisors also took a very bold step in fighting back against the lockdown as well by um, basically. Basically, we have some lawsuits going on uh, additionally, and they were fighting back as well because they said, hey, look at the numbers. Our hospital system's not overwhelmed here. And the same way that you're what you're doing there, people are realizing that the data doesn't match up. And as unpopular as that opinion is, it is data based. You cannot argue with actual numbers. And so you talked about Governor Newsom and, and, and his level of power. And I do want to get into that because he has a certain level of power that works only during a state of emergency. This is talking about the executive branch that is completely uncontested. He does not have to have anything voted on. Nobody else has to agree with it. He can do a lot during this time. And I have a feeling that's why the state of emergency has has been extended the way that it is. So how long do you think it's fair for a governor to declare a state of emergency and utilize these powers when we're seeing, of course, the data is not matching up and we have this huge backlash of the small businesses and the unemployed that are being affected by these policies? Right. Right. Well, you know, it, it, it's less what I think is fair. It's more what the law requires. 
So in order for the governor to be able to declare a state of emergency, state law is very clear. Uh, Article 13 describes the state of emergency and Section 8625 has a very clear definition. He, the governor must first find that the circumstances that are described in a different section, Section 8558, exist. And what, those, what that describes is that we have a situation like a pandemic, an earthquake, a flood, a fire. We have a situation that is currently or is likely to, and this is the operative phrase that allowed him to meet this finding, or is likely to uh, be beyond the control of the services, personnel, equipment, and facilities of any single county, city and county, or city. So back in early March, when we were all thinking we're going to lose you know, two to five million Americans, we were all thinking, yeah, it's likely to overwhelm mm-hmm. our system. So he has to be able to make that fi- finding or is likely to. The second finding he has to be able to make, he finds that local authority is there's nothing prospective. That is current and temporary. I mean, that is current and, and, and snapshot in time. He finds that local authority is inadequate to cope with the emergency. Hmm. He has to be able to make those two findings at, at such time that he cannot make those two findings. The law is clear. The governor shall proclaim the termination of a state of emergency at the earliest possible date that conditions warrant. If he can't make the finding today that local authority is inadequate to cope with the emergency, he must declare an end. There's not a county in California that has its healthcare system overwhelmed by this disease. We're not in a state of emergency by definition. And then what is it that counties can do from your perspective? And what are you guys doing legally to go back against that, knowing that it's basically unjust? Unfortunately, we have in this state, we have allowed such regulatory control at the state level Mm -hmm. of so many of the mechanisms of our economy that even if we say to our businesses, hey, go ahead and open up, um, the governor has already directly threatened uh, through his alcohol beverage control and through Department of Cosmetology they they have directly been threatening business. I've had businesses send me the letters that they've received saying, hey, just because um, your locality might think it's OK to open up, your liquor license is in jeopardy if you're, you do or your cosmetology license right. is in jeopardy if you do. So they're threatening businesses using the mechanisms of the state. We've heard the same here in Orange County as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so essentially you feel that the state of emergency is over in Placer County and a number of counties. It's over statewide. Right, it's over statewide. There is no state of emergency. Right, but but especially, I mean, especially counties such as yours, and I would say Mm -hmm. maybe probably like Orange County where we are, where we just haven't been hit very hard. Um, You're saying that you guys don't have any sort of – recourse or, or authority to end the state of emergency and nope. and allow everything to turn to, to return to normal that's all in the hands of the governor that's right and and think of you know beautiful placer county we go from uh you know about 200 feet above sea level down here at the county line with sacramento county we go all the way up to 40 percent of the surface area of lake tahoe is in placer county squaw valley alpine meadows north star uh, all of north lake tahoe and the west shore of lake tahoe are all in placer county right now they should be booked up solid for the summer. 
Yeah. You know, everybody thinks about skiing in Tahoe. It's really the summer where they make their money. Mm. They're vacant. They, they're not even taking reservations right now because they don't know when the governor, because the governor's made it clear that even though he's letting some counties, quote unquote, accelerate through phase two, Placer County is the largest county that, that got that, that status. And I think it's more than a coincidence that we're the ones banging on this the hardest and we were allowed to, to go move through stage two because mm. I think he's hoping to keep us quiet. He's made it clear we're, we're moving into stage three together. Well, stage three is lodging. That's our hotels. That's mm-hmm. that's all of our all yeah. of our uh, folks up in Tahoe. I, I, we will decimate the Tahoe economy, decimate it. Those businesses are gone mm-hmm. and never coming back. He said you and I don't know for sure, but he said that the whole state will move into stage three together. That won't be that's like what, yeah, individualized that was his, per county. That's right. That was his message a week wow. and a half ago. Now. We also know that his message a week and a half ago could be completely different tomorrow because that's <laughs> right. something else that right. he's been doing is right. he's been moving the goalposts. Right. You know, yeah. we right. had one testing threshold and then it's a different testing threshold. We had one tracers threshold and that tree. Oh, don't get me started on that. Right. Well, and it's, <laughs> um, it's interesting, like you're saying, because at the time that people were protesting the beaches being closed and these lawsuits coming from Orange County coming up there because he was basically holding us hostage as far as our beaches, but everybody else was open. Then a day later, two days later, he changes his mind and says, oh, okay, we're moving on. And everybody thinks, okay, we're moving into the next phase. Businesses are going to reopen. And then he comes out with a long list of things, the criteria that you have to meet to do that, which is unattainable. And so you're absolutely right. He tends to go back and forth, back and forth. He makes you think that you're going to be getting some new freedoms and back to life. And then he takes it back away again. And that's been extremely frustrating for residents of this state. You're right. And that's, see, and this is what I keep trying to get my colleagues to focus on. He only is able to do that because he is keeping us in this declared state of emergency. Right. That's why the only mechanism here is to fight on that point. Hmm. We have got a county. Uh, there's got to be a county somewhere that can get three votes. I've got a, a great legal outfit up here called the Pacific Justice Institute. They've been looking into my claims. Uh, their chief counsel thinks I'm absolutely right on the law. And he said all all that would be needed is for a board of supervisors. He doesn't think that I as an individual supervisor have standing. He thinks it will require a vote of the board of supervisors to uh, request a, a, what's described as an extraordinary writ of mandamus that would be get filed with a local courthouse. You can do it in your own county court and uh, and and basically uh, stop the governor from being able to issue any new executive orders while this is being reviewed. And then have a judge just look at the plain language of the law and say, we're not in a state of emergency. And you mentioned Attorney General Barr and his discussions earlier where he said that as the uh, the country, from the country's national uh, standpoint, that they want to be able to go after, potentially go after these governors that are not allowing states to open up. And you talked about this letter that you had received um, that basically threatened your county's disaster relief funds if you continue to speak out against the governor. Uh, can wow. can you so and, and you and you were talking about how you thought this letter could be the thing that Attorney General Barr might be able to use. Can you tell everybody who hasn't seen your video on this what was in that letter and why you think Attorney General Barr might be able to use this to be able to stop this uncontested executive order that we're seeing from Governor Newsom? Sure, sure. So um, 
on uh, I forget which Tuesday it was. It was a few weeks ago. Our board adopted that resolution that I described, uh, which called upon the governor to end the state of emergency uh, statewide because we he can't meet the definition. So that was on a Tuesday. On a Wednesday, we packaged that, that up and sent it to uh, the governor's office. I then sent a separate email uh, to the governor and copied uh, the Attorney General Javier Becerra here in California. And essentially, in my email to them, I, I just said, by what authority are you uh, uh, controlling counties at this point? We're not in a state of emergency. I laid out the facts and uh, simply uh, uh, told him, you, you, you need to end this now. Well, I didn't hear back from the governor. Uh, I heard back from the uh, director of the Office of Emergency Services, Mark Gillarducci, who sent me a letter on Friday of that week. Uh, where uh, he'd obviously had some staff doing quite a bit of uh, research because he's got uh, seven seven different uh, footnotes of uh, of county board votes and all the rest where he, as he points out uh, and he actually bolded it in his letter you to me uh, you voted ra- uh, to ratify the proclamation on March 9th. Right. Well, yeah, on March 9th. Well, yes, I did. You're right. right. Uh, we're it, it, it's April now, Mark. The right. end of April. We're two months later, and the data doesn't support this. So, you know, yes, I did. But then he goes on, and this was the really interesting part. He wrote, "I caution that your improvident rhetoric in your missive may jeopardize your county's access to disaster relief." and other funding meant to mitigate the effects of emergencies. My rhetoric, because he doesn't like what I said, my words hurt his feelings because he doesn't like what I said. He's going to withhold access, our county's access to disaster relief and other funding. Which is a threat. I mean, that's a threat. That is the definition of tyranny. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that you received that letter, and that letter obviously becomes personal because this is no longer about, hey, we're trying to support your county. Go ahead and provide us with the data that would make us, you know, believe that you're at a place where you can move forward. This was a a personal threat of you continue to speak out and we're going to find ways to hurt you other, you know, other ways to hurt you. And, you know, so in in what we've done as we've fought mandates as it relates to medical mandates, uh, we have seen legislators, state uh, senators and assembly members who have told our colleagues directly that I was basically threatened to, if I vote against my party, if I vote yes on uh, yes to this, on no on this, whatever the measure was, that they will have money taken away, funding taken away, they will be taken off committees. They will, you know, this is, this is kind of like these backdoor dealings that you hear about with politics is how can I use my power to convince you to go along with what I want you to do? And if you dare speak out against that, even if you know it's to be, you know, this is the truth, that there is a risk in doing that. And they're trying to let you know, which whichever way that is, um, that you might be punished or scolded for your, you know, outlying opinion. And of course, that's extremely dangerous, because we're supposed to be based on information and fact, and you're supposed to be representing the residents of Placer County, you're supposed to be doing that job, you're not supposed to be keeping people happy, you know, within the government and keeping your mouth shut in order to do that. That's just not how freedom of speech is supposed to work. What kind of backlash have you seen now from being so outspoken? And are you seeing any support that you didn't expect from from sharing your views? 
Yeah, I, I, I will say that the the support that I've received far outweighs the backlash. I, I do have some people. I had one email from somebody asking me if I wanted to have the all the dead bodies stacked on my uh, my front lawn and, you know, all the blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, I, I do have I do have the haters out there who are saying that all I'm going to do is kill people in the name of capitalism. Um, and, uh, and yet the, the support really, uh, has been overwhelming. Um, and, and, and from, from both sides of the aisle, I will tell you hmm. that there are, uh, I am a, a registered Republican. We run for County supervisors, nonpartisan seats, but I'm a registered Republican. In fact, my dad, uh, worked for governor Reagan. That's what brought us up to Northern California in 1970. Um, so, uh, uh, but I, I'm getting all kinds of very positive feedback from, uh, from my registered Democrat friends as well. And, you know, you mentioned the legislators themselves feeling like they could be threatened if they, uh, if they engage the reason that I think that, that people, uh, that the legislature is being held out of session, they're not being allowed to meet is the second half of this section of 8629, which I read to you, which says the governor shall proclaim the termination of state emergency at the earliest possible date conditions warrant, goes on to read this. All of the powers granted the governor by this chapter with respect to a state of emergency shall terminate when the state of emergency has been terminated by proclamation of the governor or by concurrent resolution of the legislature, declaring it at an end. If the legislature were in session, right, the 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 a member of the House and a member of the Senate could get together and introduce a resolution and force a vote, declaring this at an end. And I guarantee you, the Democratic control of both houses of the state of California are keeping the legislature out so that doesn't happen because they don't want their members to have to go on the record with a vote. Wow. That's amazing. Who decides if, if, to keep the legislature out of session? The the, the speaker of the uh, of the assembly and the it's Tony president Atkins, of the Senate, okay. right? Is yeah, that so, Tony Atkins? Yeah, so it'd be the the Democratic majority leaders of yeah. the of the, the two well, this, sections. The, yeah, the speaker. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. We do hear a lot about this. Um, uh, the response to COVID-19 kind of differing according to party lines. But have you spoken with a number of Democratic colleagues? And are, are you hearing kind of what their opinions are? Do, do some yeah, of their opinions the line up level. with yours? Okay. No, only at the local level. I have not spoken to any Democrat legislators. Okay, well, uh, what, but, what are you hearing on the local level from Democrats? Oh, they, they, they agree completely. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've, I found that this entire argument as it relates to coronavirus um, has really been presented completely differently, whether you're looking through a Democratic lens or a Republican lens. And the same goes, the same is true for the media. The way that we've seen this virus and the pandemic, and whether or not this is a public health crisis or not, uh, portrayed is based on political party, which it should not be. However, it is absolutely broken into two sides here. And you've got mm-hmm. one side saying that people are dying left and right. We have to keep this lockdown happening. Money over lives, just like you said. And then we have another side saying, this is overblown. The data doesn't back this up. Our economy is being broken in ways that will end up with more deaths than the virus Mm -hmm. itself. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing this very politically split. And what I'm noticing is people I know 
who watch liberal news, and I'm an independent, but people that watch liberal news are much more fearful of the virus. Mm -hmm. And people that watch conservative-based news are much more interested in opening the economy back up and and fearing for what's going to happen to everybody as it relates to their livelihoods. And it's a little scary to me when I think about how our American views can be shaped and our belief system can be shaped so much by what political leaders and media are giving us as it relates to something that should be a medical discussion. This should be a very straight up and down medical discussion based on fact. But that's not what we're seeing. No. Yeah. Kirk, what are you hearing from your new uh, public health director uh, if you've hired one, or if you have an interim one. No, we we, we still have we still have the same. Uh, say she 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 changed her position and kept her kept her job. Let's just I see, I see. So um, uh, we're I'm not really hearing much uh, because again we're not in an active any kind of any any kind of an active state of emergency. Um, so really, not much. I'm not right. hearing a lot. But but um, did you say earlier that from as far as you hearing from local Democrats, you feel like uh-huh. they they agree with you? Oh, absolutely. They're agreeing with you on kind of on a local level. Yeah, because but they're yeah. looking at how their how their their local cities and counties are directly being affected by the by the economic shutdown. Yeah, uh, cities are feeling it immediately, right? Cities are sale, are sales tax more sales tax oriented than counties. Counties are property tax, so we at the county level we won't really feel the net effect of this for another year or so when when we start seeing property values drop, led by uh, a decimated commercial sector. When you have, uh, as the NFIB estimated, possibly as as, as many as sixty percent of all small businesses might end up being shut down by this. Uh, and not coming back, um, you, you're going to see a tremendous drop in the value of commercial properties. And then that, of course, has a trickle-down effect to the residential side. You have people are, are losing jobs. Escrows are falling out. Um, you know, Folks who were moving forward with buying homes are not moving forward with mm-hmm. buying new homes now because things are so uncertain. And so we're going to see a dramatic drop in our assessed valuation at the county level, which will affect our ability to provide services ongoing. And that's what we've got to get people focused on is, yeah, here and now we do have some people who need our help, but our healthcare system has plenty of capacity to help those people. We're not overwhelming Mm -hmm. the system that is set up for the purpose of, of, of helping those people. But what we are doing is we're obliterating our ability to help all of our citizens for years to come because we're tanking our revenues. Right. So what do you think, what do you personally think is behind Newsom's decision to extend the state of emergency and to keep the lockdown going in a state that obviously did not experience a huge outbreak? What do you think is really going on behind this? You know, I... I, Or what can you share? What can you share of what you believe? I wish I I knew because it it is... For somebody with 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 my kind of life view of of how government should work, mm-hmm. um, this is this is just it's it's inexplicable. It mm-hmm. is utterly inexplicable that anybody would want to perpetuate uh, this state of chaos, and that's really what we've got is is a governor that is intent on perpetuating this for what reason certainly not for valid public health reasons do you think it's possible it's political 
I, I think if it's not for valid public health reasons, what other option mm-hmm. is it? It's got to be political. The same thing. I, I've had a lot of people ask me, well, why would why would a governor want to purposely tank the economy? Because I've been saying the same thing that you're saying. The data doesn't line up. And there's no excuse to keep our economies uh, halted like this. And it mm-hmm. seems that it is politically motivated that there is that they're stopping it for a reason. And people say, well, what kind of governor would do that? Why would you ever want your residents to be unemployed or dependent upon government or whatever it is? And, you know, I haven't had the answers either. Just like you're saying, I've always well, said, I don't know. I think we I think we got a little glimpse uh, last week. Mm-hmm. When the governor announced that he's asking the federal government for a one trillion dollar yes. bailout, yes, um, because that that bailout is not just for quote unquote COVID related issues, right? That is to shore up the pension system. That there's no way the state is ever going to be able to pay the bill for this ridiculous pension system that we still have in this state, and that is what was contained within that one trillion dollar bailout ask. And do you think that's why he basically created the Western States Pact to be able to ask for this? Because I thought that was the oddest thing when I first saw him saying, I'm going to come together with Washington and Oregon so we can all open up together. I'm thinking to myself, what do these other states have to do with our economy? Every economy is unique. The only reason that you you bind together that way is to have more power. And I I thought it was odd. And then, yes, a couple weeks later, he's asking for a trillion dollars in relief. But I find that so odd because He's asking for relief in a state that he's basically putting into distress. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I was thinking about this yesterday, and it, it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like he's 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 already blown a hole in one foot, mm-hmm. uh, and he's demanding that we patch up that foot while he's taking aim at the other foot. I, I wonder um, if the Democratic majority here in California is going to lose a lot of their voting base over this issue because everyone's going to lose their, their houses, their livelihood, their income. And it's going to affect, you know, Republicans and Democrats equally statewide. And and so I don't understand. I mean, I see them having a lot of political motives, but unless they can convince all their Democratic voters that they've made the right decisions on this and the and that yes covid-19 was worth everyone losing their livi- livelihoods and tanking the entire economy for months on end if not years unless they can convince everyone that they made the right decision they are going to lose a lot of their voting base and well, that might, I, that I might affect you, California in, in the future i guarantee you that that is the reason why the legislature is not going into session because they know uh, the minute they they were to go into session they 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 i i know personally at least two republican legislators one in the assembly and one in the senate who are going to introduce a resolution at the first available opportunity mm-hmm. and force a vote and and that is what they are trying to protect their members from. They do not want their members to have to go on the record and say that, yes, on, you know, May, whatever date or June, whatever date, three months after all this nonsense started, I voted to keep it going. That's when you would see blood in the streets politically for that party. But absent wow. absent an actual on the vote record or on the record vote, it's going to be harder to tie these people to it. And so do you think, were you surprised when you saw Newsom's decision to um, decide on mail-in voting for the presidential election coming up? Oh, not at all. And didn't that sort of seem like that was... 
part they of set all this? this up perfectly with the, with the ballot harvesting law mm-hmm. that they got passed here in California, where chain of custody is no longer an issue. It used to be that uh, if you had a ballot that was mailed to you, you had to personally deliver that ballot. Uh, you had to sign and attest that it was you that filled it out before you sent it in. Uh, none of all those requirements on delivering ballots has all gone away. And now anybody can deliver a ballot for you. And so what they did very effectively uh, in 2018 was a ballot harvesting operation where they went door to door in the heavy Democrat areas. They knocked on doors of people who, that they know historically don't vote, right? They're registered to vote. Of course, it all starts with the motor voter. Where everybody who registers or even talks to the DMV now gets registered to vote. So they went door to door in areas where they knew people were not voting and were not going to vote and basically just said, hey, we know you haven't voted, so just give us your ballot. We know you got mailed one, so just give us your ballot. We're going to go turn it in for you. And they voted the ballots. That's mm-hmm. how we lost six congressional seats in California. Wow. And so it does kind of seem like this state of emergency is basically another opportunity to be making decisions. And like you're saying, inside that trillion dollar request is going to be things that affect the state in other ways that people are not even aware of and no legislature is voting on because this is all being this is all kind of happening. The same thing with the national, the federal stimulus uh, as well. You've got these other things that are being thrown in there that most people aren't aware of. Meanwhile, your average Joe or what they say, you know, people on Main Street, so to speak, your small businesses. A lot of these people did not get any part of the small business stimulus. That that money ran out really quickly. And many people haven't seen even a penny of unemployment or, or federal relief or state any kind of state relief. And meanwhile, you have L.A. County with their public health officer, Barbara Ferrer, however you say her last name, uh, deciding that this might be another three months, another three months from this point. And they already have a 50 percent unemployment rate in, the, in L.A. Right. And we know by virtue of their own statistics that the L.A. County hospitals are in no way being adversely impacted by this, meaning meaning being overrun. They are being adversely impacted, as you pointed out, because the, the revenue-generating procedures are, are not mm-hmm. being held. Right. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, people who uh, are not getting any stimulus money, you know, they're feeling the, the pressure more and more. They're, they're f- being financially devastated. So they're going to be affected by this long term, the longer this goes on. But what I find interesting is people who are receiving stimulus money, basically, you know, the government's paying them to stay home and to be happy about staying home. You know, that that wears on people. And that kind of mm-hmm. like you, you start to lose your dignity. You start to become like like a, you know, a, a, a ward of the state, so to speak. You're like, you know, we're designed as people to get out there and provide and earn money, earn a living and be in charge of ourselves. And, you know, I, I think everyone's being hurt by this, whether you're receiving stimulus money or not. Yeah, the money yep. is nice in the short term. But what is that doing to our psyche and our just our drive? You know, to yeah. to get out there and succeed and work hard and provide for your families and and you know do something good for society, and and so I, I see you know both sides of this being heard. And so it's funny, you know, the governor says if you're sitting around at home, you know, go out and volunteer. You know, go out and you know, volunteer <laughs> for something. And and that's and, not a public health risk. It's totally fine to be <laughs> right, around big right. groups of people volunteering. Yeah. You're just not allowed right. to make an income for yourself or your family. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. I hope 
that our federal government denies California that trillion dollar ask that, right. that the governor sent in, because I think that's going to be bad for us in the long run. One thing I wanted to ask you is, do you think that there is a risk to these people that are now getting paid more? Some people are actually getting paid more oh, yes. to uh-huh. stay home. Is there uh-huh. a risk to our workforce now to create this type of situation where people no longer want to go to work? Right. Some some companies are losing employees because they're getting paid more to stay at home. Mm-hmm. And does is anybody stopping to think, where is this money coming from? Like, we're already in debt as a state. We're in, de- in debt as a nation. Nobody's talking about this idea of printing more money and what that's going to do to the value of money and how it's going to affect future generations. What do you think about that? Right. Well, you, you touched on a couple of different things there. Number one, the breakdown of the supply chain. Uh, the, and, and, you know, what, what is the supply chain? The supply chain is really just a fancy term for how I get stuff. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's really what the supply chain breaks down to. And part of how I get stuff is a labor component. And if if the labor component is artificially depressed because anybody who got laid off for four months is going to make more money laid off than they were making for the four months prior when they were working, you have just taken away the ability to deliver goods and services at the retail level Mm -hmm. because people are now making more money not working than they did for the four months prior while they were working. Mm -hmm. So you have just affected artificially by action of government. You've just affected the supply chain. So retail establishments and restaurants that might want to open are not able to because they can't get employees. I've got a business a nice little restaurant less than a mile away from where I'm sitting right now who is still doing only takeout because they can't get their employees to come back. Wow. Kirk, you've been at this for uh, many years in your position as, as a county supervisor, and we appreciate that. But, you know, you know what you're talking about. You've been doing this for a very long time, and you know how your county is being impacted by this on a financial level and a political level. And um I'd like to know what would you like um, other people, other residents of your county and other counties, you know, the voters and, and the constituents, where can people reach out to to have their voices heard? I mean, do they speak to their own county supervisors? Yeah. Do they try to speak yeah, right directly now, to the governor? What we really need right now is at least one county, hopefully more than one county, uh, to get on board with the idea of uh, telling the governor he is acting outside of his authority, calling on him to end the state of emergency as as our board has done, but then be willing to take the next step and actually go to court and file the extraordinary writ of mandamus uh, to, to get this into a judge's hand so that a judge can look at the plain letter of the law. And, you know, this is where's Javier Becerra on all this? Can can Javier take five minutes out from suing the Trump administration to actually enforce our state law? Wow. You know, that that's his yeah. job as our mm-hmm. state attorney general, but he seems to spend all his time suing Trump. Mm. Um, so I, I just, yes, I think that the, the best avenue right now is for folks to learn who their county supervisor is and reach out to their county supervisor and say, enough, declare an end to the state of emergency and file the uh, extraordinary writ of mandamus that's required to get this thing into the judge's hands. Right. So anybody could just go on online and type in their county, 
you know, uh-huh. just the account say, you know, whatever county, Orange County Board of Supervisors, you'll see their website, you'll see how to contact yep. them, you can call, you can email, show up at their meetings. I mean, what yep. do you tell well, me? I they, mean, you guys have meetings every week or so. What happens if there's a crowd of 500 people outside, you know, demanding for reopening? Does that influence you, you guys? Do you guys hear that, that message? That's huge. Absolutely huge. Yes. All right. So people need to start doing that. You need to start showing up. Now person. Melissa knows what's on my calendar for next week. Organize a <laughs> protest at county board level. Thank you for that. The one other thing that I might just add, if I may, is is when, you know, there's there's going to be time to look back on this and, and, you know, make some judgment calls. But the one thing that I want people as they are looking at casting a vote in November, whether it is for city council, county supervisor, state assembly, state senate, United States Congress, we don't have a Senate race here in California this year, or the president of the United States. Whatever the office is, I encourage people to evaluate their actions of the elected officials, their Mm -hmm. elected officials, in one of two buckets. Those who sought to consolidate power in a command and control fashion and grow the power of government through this, versus those of us who agreed to temporarily sacrifice our individual liberty for the greater good, but then fought like hell to re-secure the individual liberty. And it's interesting because we have seen across the nation a very clear distinction between states with governors that are Democratic versus Republican on their stance on the lockdown and how long they're uh, having this lockdown go down, whether or not they're reopening the economy. Like this has really been a very clear political divide. Do you think that this is they're trying to let's say the states with Democratic governors like ours. Do you think they're trying to extend this until November? Um, I, I don't know if they can extend it to November, but, um, you know, you, you, you got, you got to the question of the why, right. And, and, you know, as I hope people remember that every single elected official, public health professional that's standing in front of a camera or a microphone telling us that our businesses are, you know, that are closing and jobs being lost and the damage is being done to our economy, telling us that that is necessary. Every one of those people is still getting a paycheck. Right. Every single one is still getting a paycheck while we're seeing this economic devastation. And those who've been occupying the camera lenses and the microphones imploring Mm -hmm. them to heed their warnings, they will never be more relevant than they are right now. You're absolutely right. Is it in their interest that the crisis end? If the crisis is over, Gavin Newsom doesn't get a noon press conference every day. You're, you're absolutely right. A lot of people had no idea really who he was. They were not familiar with him, even though he's been a governor of the state already for two years. This has made him, and you know, I mean, obviously everybody knows he has a, a desire to run for president, or that's the, oh, yeah. the rumor, that he's trying to become a household name. And you're yep. seeing the mm-hmm. same thing with I see with Cuomo. You're seeing some oh, of yeah. these people really stepping up, like you're saying, and using this as a chance to have a national limelight. My concern, if you're looking at the longer extension here, what from a public health standpoint, what sense does it make to reopen the economy in the fall right when the flu season's about to start? When right. we understand that the, the cases are not going anywhere, they're just going to be prolonged, you're literally encouraging people, not you, but th- this philosophy is encouraging people to open up and start mingling with the world right when we have another very contagious virus going around. And to me, that just, I can't 
help but think that is somehow by design to extend another surge, another lockdown. I don't know. There's something behind this that does not come down to public health. And that's why I've been led to think that this is, you know, political in what way, like you're saying, I don't know the specifics. I'm not privy to the, to the conversations that are happening in these closed doors and on these phones between the people that are making these decisions. But I know it has to be something. And I have been speaking out just like if you've been, you've been speaking out because the data says one thing and, and you're at least being a voice for the residents in your county and across the state and in other states even have been sharing your videos because they feel like they're part of that group of people that is not being recognized. And that's the group of businesses or those who've lost their income, lost their livelihood, and now are not able to put food on the table. This is something I argued early on. For some reason, people have a really hard time stepping outside of their little bubble and looking at the grand scheme of things. They're not looking at the long term. And just like you said, this economic devastation, it's not going to be immediate. You're not going to see people in the streets starving. That doesn't happen now. That comes in the next months and years to follow. And we have to make decisions now that that are affecting and, and, and supporting our residents and citizens of this country for the next five and 10 years. We have to make these tough decisions for what happens in the long haul. Why do you think people have such a hard time being able to see down the line versus just being right caught up in the moment right now? You know, I, I, that is, that is uh, probably a bigger uh, philosophical question <laughs> as to how, how we live our lives these days with everything uh, microwaved and available to us instantly through mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. You know, we we just the ability to plan things long term seems to be a lost art. When I when my kids come to me and say, "Hey, Dad, is it okay if I go to the movie with my friends?" or all that, and then two minutes, literally two minutes later, "Oh, we're not going to the movies. We're going to Jim's house." You know, and then it's two minutes later, mm-hmm. "Oh, that fell through. We're not doing that." Nobody plans because everybody's available instantly. So we're all right now in the moment. What am I doing right now in the moment? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to plan for next Mm -hmm. week or next year. And the larger we grow government and and allow government to to step in and, and take over what should be the uh, the appropriate roles of, of properly provided for families by parents, um, and and the more we acquiesce to the government taking over some of those roles, the the worse it's just going to get. And so, what do you think right now? If you could give advice to citizens of the state, we people have been protesting, obviously, to try to to show power in numbers and understand the liberties are at risk here and how important it is to reopen the economy so people can put food on the table. What do you think is the most effective thing that people can be doing in California or in other states? Um, Just not letting up on contacting their local elected officials. You've got to demand action from your local elected officials. Uh, That's where you have the greatest accessibility, greatest recourse, and you all at this point, all 58 counties should be telling the governor, we got this because there's not a single county in this state whose whose medical system within the county is overwhelmed and they are unable to handle it. Every single county in the state should be demanding that the governor release the state of emergency. And so when you say local elected officials, who, who does that entail? City and county. Your city and county. Yeah, unfortunately, the state legislature is, is kind of a lost cause right now. Um, it, it, this is a battle at the local level. This yeah. is yeah, reach you're, out you're, to your city council member, council reach out members. to your county supervisor. 
Yeah. Well, what about your city mayors? Yeah, that's yeah. The, 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 the mayor. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, when I say city council, that's, it, it includes the mayor. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, so yes. city council but members, yes, mayors, and then your board of supervisors. Yeah. Yes. You know, that's good advice. It's interesting what you just said about um, you know, the, looking at the short-term versus long-term plans. And I feel like, and I was guilty of this, you know, originally, I feel like, you know, yeah, we all felt good about doing our part with the shutdown and protecting the vulnerable, protecting the elderly. And yeah, sure, I'll stay home for two or three weeks so we can get a handle on this. I feel like that was sort of a lot of people agreed on that short-term plan. Melissa did not. Melissa first saw all the problems that, that could come of, of that kind of acquiescence and that kind of, you know, giving the government that short-term power. But now we're stuck. Now we're stuck. The government has that power over us in the state of emergency. And so now I, I think everyone who is a voter for the party who is, uh, uh, you know, propagating that uh, that viewpoint. Now they're kind of stuck. They're like, do I keep voting for my Democratic leaders because that's the party I support? But now I kind of don't agree with them dragging this out for three, six months, you, you know, one or two more years. Who knows how long it's going to be? At what point do do people of our all parties come together and say there there is a clear direction for us as a nation now? Our leaders, you know, on one side are not taking us in that direction. They're taking us in a direction that's going to cause way more harm than good. And are a lot of people going to come to that realization and and shift the politics of of, uh, of our country? And I I don't know if they will, but I, I certainly hope so. I mean, for me, I just I would just I want life to get back to normal. I don't want our society to change. I don't want us to become a society of fear. And if our kids, you know, learn, I don't want our kids to learn to be too afraid to go out and play with each other. And, you right. know, uh, be afraid to go up and, and hug their friends. And, you know, you've seen pictures of kids on playgrounds at schools, you know, sitting in their own little square six feet away from each other. And, you know, kids, you know, uh, afraid to go to school and then play. I mean, we have to return to a normal society. There cannot be a new normal. And, no. if, and if, if, if citizens accept, um, uh, you know, Governor Newsom's and other Democrats' version of what new normal looks like and think that that's okay, that's going to hurt us for decades to come if our society changes that drastically over this. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. Following up on that, I, the last question I have for you and that we have for you today is I've seen what, okay, so one thing in the vaccine mandate world, which is the thing we tend to talk about the most here, we see a lot of media sound bites. We see phrases like safe and effective. We see right away things like vaccines don't cause autism. There are certain phrases every single media outlet will use as it relates to this topic that you can tell are provided. What I have also seen with this is we're seeing the other sound bites. And so I want to I wanted just to kind of get speaking of the new normal. That's one of them. Right. We're seeing these public health officers. I've seen the L.A. public health officers say this is going to be a new normal. We see governors talking about their phases and reopening, saying it's phase four is the new normal. And this has now become a media soundbite, along with we are all in this together, which, of course, we're all not in this together because many of us are not receiving a paycheck and are not not able to put food on the table. And like you said, the ones that are screaming for the extended lockdown are receiving income and they're not, they're not in the same boat. And the last one, 
that from a, a data standpoint kind of bothers me is the stay home, save lives, because now we're seeing data show us, just like Governor Cuomo said, close to 70 percent of the new hospitalizations are those who are sheltering in place. And we're finding out that vitamin D has a big um, a big role in whether or not you're going to end up in the ICU with uh, with a COVID case. And so these three sound bites are something I've definitely taken issue with because they feel very it feels like part of a PR campaign to make everybody feel good about what's going on. I, I would love as we close with this kind of your take on the media spin, the sound bites, and what do you think of those phrases? Well, I, I appreciate more than you know your pushback against this this concept of a quote unquote new normal. Uh, we didn't arrive at what was normal, what we all knew to be normal by virtue of any kind of government edict. We did it because it's human nature. We interact with each other in a fashion that has evolved over you know, how many how many years. That's what normal is, and that's what normal will be again. There will not be a new normal because this one epidemic is not going to change human nature. Humans are a social animal by our nature. We get together in crowds and we cheer on sporting teams. We do things like that, and we will continue to do things like that in spite of government edicts. And so the people who are using the expression new normal, that's just another way of saying consolidating government power and limiting individual liberty. Mm -hmm. Every time you hear we have to expect a new normal, hear the words instead, I want to take away your individual liberty. Mm. Yeah, and that, isn't that scary? That was very mm. scary. Yeah, well, um, well, this uh, has been a, a fantastic episode. I, I learned a lot about uh, about the role of county supervisors and you know, Kirk Euler, again, the county supervisor for Placer County. It's been awesome to have you on this. I'm, uh, well, thank you. I'm, yeah, thank this you. has I've been really fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, I, I love being able to just have access to someone at, at your level of government because you're you're like you know in the trenches doing the day to day work of your county, and that's uh, very much appreciated. But it's great to get your viewpoint as someone who's actively working on this. You're not like living the politics of this. You're just in the day to day grind. Of, of, you know, somebody representing their county. And we appreciate that. Yeah. And I also want to thank you. And I know many would agree with this for being willing to be a voice that's unpopular because you know, it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to be talking about. And you're trying to perpetuate a discussion and trying to open up and facilitate people discussing something that's uncomfortable. And again, it's unpopular, but you know, the character, your character is, is holding true to what you believe is right regardless of what's being pushed around you. And I applaud you for not being willing to be silenced just to make certain people happy. And I know other people feel the same way. I think you're probably encouraging other people, whether it's in a level of local politics or just an average citizen, to find their voice and be willing to speak out about this also, because as we know, we will go nowhere unless we all kind of join on this together and speak out together, just like you've mentioned. So I applaud you for doing that. It, it can be really difficult to be the black sheep. And um, when you when you know what you know, and you really truly believe in your heart that something is wrong here, and you, you feel it's important to speak out, you have no other choice. So I, I applaud you for doing that. And thank you for continuing to be a voice for this discussion. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Melissa and Dr. Bob, I, I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to chat with you guys and, and, and share with your listeners the, uh, my perspective on this. So thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Kirk, um, where can people follow you on social media or kind of uh, you know, be in touch with you if you want them to be? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, well, I'm I'm on Facebook, and fortunately, there aren't too many Kirk Euler's out there. So, if somebody just looks up K I R K U H L E R, you'll see my official government page. Um, and uh, uh, Twitter is just at Kirk Euler on Twitter. All right, awesome. That's great. Well, I'll continue to follow you and look forward to the content that you're putting out. I appreciate well, your time today you. so much. Thank you, guys. Well, this has been the Vaccine Conversation with uh, Melissa and Dr. Bob and And Kurt Euler. Uh, (laughs) So we will catch you guys next time. Information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.